Hey, everybody, welcome back to Gear 30 on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Today, we are talking with Blister reviewer Paul Forward about some of the backcountry gear that he's been testing around Girdwood, Alaska, including skis from Moonlight and Movement, bindings from Moment and Dinafit, climbing skins from G3 and Pomoka, and Scarpa boots. Now, we also discuss current trends or fads in ski poles. Paul has a few thoughts on those. And we also talk about the underrated value of a good snow saw. And in very fitting fashion, this episode of Gear 30 is presented by our blister-recommended shop in Girdwood, Alaska, Powderhound. And since, as you'll hear Paul say, the Girdwood area got off to a very good start this season, Powderhound quickly sold off a lot of their gear, but the shop has been restocked their website isn't totally up to date yet, but you can just call or stop into Powderhound to learn more about the current inventory. Powderhound carries a huge inventory of skis, boots, snowboards, outerwear, helmets, goggles, and anything else you need for skiing or riding this winter. And that includes a huge demo fleet for, say, big powder boards that you might only need if you're visiting AK. And if you are interested in a boot fitting with one of Powderhound's Master Fit certified boot fitters, you can book a 60-minute appointment online. One last thing, Blister members get 20% off custom footbeds and one free race wax at Powderhound. So become a Blister member if you aren't already, and then head into Powderhound today and get your custom footbeds. Fun fact, by the way, I went skiing last week completely forgot to take my custom footbeds out of one boot that I was reviewing to put them in the new boot I was reviewing. Turns out that was excruciating. Absolutely excruciating. Can't overestimate the importance of a good custom footbed. This episode is also presented by Mountain Flow, which is a company that's disrupting the ski and snowboard and bike industry by producing high-performing products that are also biodegradable and more sustainable than the conventional products in their categories. We just had a really good Gear 30 conversation with Mountain Flow founder Peter Arlene. We'll include a link to it in the show notes of this episode. And you can also head over to mountainflow.com to check out and pick up some of their products. And now let's go ahead and get to my conversation with everybody's favorite heli guide slash medical doctor slash bow hunter slash, I don't know, Paul's all kinds of different things. Yeah, Paul Forward. Here we go. Well, I am so happy to be sneaking in a Gear 30 episode with Paul Forward before we get out of this year 2021. So this feels very good to me. Uh, Paul, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Jonathan, how are you today? I'm great. Uh, I'm talking with you. It's always a good time. Um, <laughs> let's see. You live in Girdwood, Alaska. It's been snowing like mad, at least at the start of the season. I don't know if that has kept up 
around there. It's like you guys got hit early. Now places like Colorado, Utah, California, we are just at the start of some big storm cycles here. But you guys certainly won early season. <laughs> we got off to a, a really good start this year. Yeah, and it's awesome to see everybody else getting snow now. But we started getting uh, snow to sea level Oh, by late October. And we even had some like some pretty snowy events in September here, really. Um, and uh, by mid-November, especially, yeah, by mid-November, it was it felt kind of like ski season around here. And by the end of November, it was it was really going. Um, Alieska opened, I think, with something like 270 inches at the top <laughs> and uh, of total snowfall, not base, but the base yeah. was over 100 inches. Yep. And uh it's, I mean, Alaska is skiing awesome right now. It just, it's skiing awesome top to bottom. Huh. Just real, and it's been staying cold, which is, which is awesome for us because the snow stays kind of chalky and, and which doesn't always happen here at sea level. Sometimes we get that kind of icy chundry stuff. So, yeah, uh, we haven't had snow in about a week though, uh, except a few little, few little shots, like three, four inches here and there. Huh. And we should tell the people, this is sort of, you know, the pulling back the curtain on blister Basically, since Thanksgiving, you would text <laughs> photos or videos to, to me and Luke Kappa in like another day of ways deep. And then we would just send you back the Gruber photos that, uh, that you know, we'd been skiing on and trying to talk about how, you know, we were getting like pow groomers and, and that kind of thing. And that's basically how it has been going. Yeah, since about Thanksgiving. Um, but now we have some, you know, big accumulation about to come in. And so, um, well, I'm happy for you guys. I'm glad it's stacking up down there. That's awesome. (laughs) Okay. Let's get to it. Yeah. I mean, this is the cool part is conditions have been awesome for you to be getting, uh, on a whole bunch of different gear and Mm -hmm. that is our work here today. So let's talk about skis first. Where do you want to begin and what have you been on? Well, I've mostly been up until, you know, a week or two ago, I've mostly been ski touring. I'm still ski touring most days and then getting in some Alaska laps in the evening, afternoon. And uh, I have been on a completely new ski, completely new brand that I've never tried before um, called Moonlight out of uh, Norway. And uh, last spring, unfortunately, too late to, to, to get on snow with them last spring, I got two pairs of their cruiser model which um, I was, it was so cool to see and a company with a new like fat touring ski. They're 120 underfoot in the 185 or 186 length that I have. And they offer the ski in two constructions. One is kind of what kind of reading between the lines, I think is akin to like a standard kind of carbon touring construction. Um, and then the other one is, I don't know what these things are made out of, but they are I'll just throw it out there. They're 120 millimeters wide, 186 centimeters long, and they weigh under 1300 grams. Of wow. Ski. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I haven't actually, they're sitting on my bench. I'm staring at them right now, sitting on the bench with the drill next to them and a pair of bindings sitting there. And I, I haven't actually mounted that pair yet because I want to be sure I, based on the other pair, I want to kind of make sure I have the binding position, right? Um, the recommended mounts pretty far back and it's actually different between the two constructions and, uh, just by like, you know, a centimeter, but, uh, I've already moved the bindings once on my, the, the first pair 
and I want to make sure I get it right before I mount up that other pair because I don't want to put two holes, two pairs of holes in that ski. Right. You'd reduce the weight of the ski by like 40%. I mean, I don't know how they do it. It's amazing. I mean, you pick it up. It's, it's, it's really pretty mystifying how they have that ski so light. And, um, you know, you might recall that I've had some negative experiences with really light skis. Yes, yes. Pl- plain old braking and lost it, kind of a messed up but triple lifetime. Um, now, that was a foam core ski. This is a wood ski. Um, but um, so I'm a little wary of them, but I'm actually really excited to get out on them. And um, I'm going to probably drill them today and maybe get out on them um, maybe tomorrow morning. So we'll see. Okay. But yeah, tell me about the, I guess we'll call it the regular cruiser or standard cruiser. Yeah. So, um, first of all, it's a beautiful ski. It's got really nice shape. It's got beautiful top sheet. The construction looks good. Um, and, uh, I initially mounted them up at recommended with a pair of moment voyagers, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, and then, uh, and I really liked them there. Uh, the ski feels light. It's still in that like 16 sub 1600 gram range for a one twenty hundred foot ski, which is, I mean, the only ski I can think of we've seen with those kind of weights is that old DPS two or one, uh, 124, which is right about the same, just a hair, a hair lighter. And it's a pretty apples to apples comparison. I have, I had them both with the same binding and I was skiing them kind of back to back days in a nutshell. What where that DPS was like a really super surfy, super floaty, uh, pow ski. The, um, the cruiser is like, it feels very directional. Um, you know, obviously they're really light skis. They get knocked around in the, in chop, but, uh, it feels like very, you know, the mount point feels more traditional. Um, even though it's actually not that different, it just feels more, it just feels different. It feels like there's a lot more ski in front of you, but it, it loves to just like, it loves to be leaned into the shovels and just, just go. It's really cool. And, and the tails still break free, but I, I felt a little off balance with it. And I just was curious what it was like, uh, a little further forward. So I remounted it with a pair of G3Zs just to try something different, which is also a great touring binding. And um, uh, I've got it about two centimeters forward now, and it felt a little weird at first. But uh, honestly, I think it's—I think the sweet spot somewhere slightly in between. But it feels really good. It didn't make it significantly surfier, but uh, I've been skiing it in everything from like you know knee deep pow to kind of you know cowboy pow like four inches on top of like a groomer kind of thing or on a smooth base. And, um, it's a, it's a fun ski. Uh, I, tr- I traded him out with, um, my good buddy who's a former Olympic, uh, mogul skier. We were ski touring the other day together. He's like my, my ski idol. I always want to ski like him. Oh, he, he tried them out and he was like, he was like, let me know if you want to sell those. <laughs> he was into them. He thought they, he thought they were really fun. And he's a, he's a really strong skier, but, um, he thought they were super fun. And the other thing is I've been skiing them, some with my Technica Zero G Pro Tour, um, but mostly with F1 LTs and Alien RSs, which we're going to talk about yeah. later today. You know, to me, that's a testament to the fact that that ski feels pretty good being pushed around, but also it doesn't feel like it's too much ski, at least in softer snow conditions, to um, to be driven pretty effectively by a you know a thousand gram two buckle or no buckle boot. <laughs> So it's, it's a cool ski. I'm really excited to spend more time on it. it it's uh, it's pretty it's pretty neat ski. It's a it's a pretty unique product in the out there right now. There's not a lot of I can't really think of any other company that's making lightweight fat skis like truly fat skis right now. Truly light, truly fat skis right now. There's a you know the the limited run of that DPS, but it was quite a bit heavier in, in the Pagoda Tour iteration, and then the um, the Black Diamond 
uh, Helio 115, mm-hmm. which it, I loved the Helio 116. I thought that was one of the greatest kind of fatter touring skis ever. Um, I haven't skied the 115 yet. I have loaned my pair out to a number of friends <clears throat> who then bought 115s, and they're telling me it's different. Um, but I haven't got the 115 under my own foot yet. So, um, but I think this Moonlight is a, a very cool ski that people who like to sc- tour on fat skis, like I do, um, should put it on the radar and uh, full review to be forthcoming. Where are we going next? Well, the other ski, um, in the interest of like absurdly light skis that I've been putting some time on, is the uh, Movement Alp Tracks 106. Luke skied that ski for review last year, but had a pretty limited amount of time on them. And uh, I'm just starting to get some days on that ski, but. It's also kind of like the cruiser comes in, you know, 200 grams lighter than most skis in its category. It's kind of in that 13, sub 1300 grams in a 186 for a 106 waisted ski, which compared to other skis I've been using in that width, like I tried the um, the K2 Wayback 106 recently, and I've been skiing quite a bit on the Blizzard Zero G 105. And those are both great skis, but they're, you know, 200 to 300 grams heavier, which for a lot of people won't matter or even as an advantage. But if you're, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a real thing if you're lugging your skis uphill all day. And um, I haven't quite figured out how to ski those Alp tracks yet. Honestly, I haven't quite figured out what, what kind of stance they like. I think they, they feel like they want to be kind of more driven from the middle, kind of more neutral. But um, they're they're a pretty interesting ski, and uh, I'm really excited to get some more time on those. Do you want to go to bindings? Yeah, sure. So uh, I've met, mentioned multiple times on the blister site, and in the we just did the five, four, three, two, and one ski quivers, and I've mentioned the moment Voyager a lot, as did a lot of other reviewers. And I I think that binding has got all of our attention for a number of reasons. It's um, first of all, it's 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 pretty light. You know, it's in that. 350 depending on how you configure it to kind of anywhere like without brakes it's about 300 grams with brakes and the um, free ride spacer it's up around like 380 um, and it it's not a true gapless binding meaning it doesn't uh, the, the heel piece doesn't actually touch the boot like the uh, marker alpinist or some of the other bindings we talked about in the past Mm -hmm. but honestly i've skied it back to back with the alpinist and the zed that i mentioned earlier and a few other gapless bindings and i can't tell the difference i mean i'm not i'm not ripping them down the groomers or the icy chundra dalieska or maybe i would but uh i think that it does offer that same kind of like that reassuring suspension where the binding will slide back and to me that's as much of a durability factor you know i've broken my share of of Dinafit bindings and other bindings over the years just because the ski hyperflexes and it breaks the binding free of the track. And um, so that's, I find that reassuring. The toe piece is awesome. I think that it's one of the better toe pieces out there. It has some adjustment for how worn out your boots are or how hard you want the, which, you know, doubles as kind of a, like a retention adjustment. I'm not sure if that's how ATK intended it, um, but they have the soft, medium and hard toe piece adjustment. Mm-hmm. And then the, the other thing that I have never really thought that much about that I cared much about before, but the heel riser set set up on that binding is pretty nice. Yep. You know, I tend to, I tend to put in a pretty mellow skin track. Like I've never, if I'm skinning in my own track, I have no trouble with the like single setting on the marker alpinist or something like that. It just has a single, you know, fairly low setting, but 
there's a lot of people skiing and turning in paths and places I go and not always putting in the kind of skin tracks I prefer. And having that higher heel riser is, um, is pretty nice. And it's with that, the way the magnet works, it just flips in and out with a flick of a pull tip. It's, uh, it's pretty sweet. Yeah. Let me ask you the tough question. Okay. Maybe not so tough. Maybe just weird. Okay. For those people who are like, all right, I'm hearing about this moment Voyager binding, and maybe I'm also considering a binding like the marker Kingpin, mm-hmm. right? That mm-hmm. has the Alpine binding style heel piece, mm-hmm. but is coming in twice as heavy. Like I think a bit mm-hmm. more a bit more than twice as heavy. I don't know the mm-hmm. last time you skied a kingpin, but how mm-hmm. would you think about the downhill performance of a, again, admittedly, it's twice as heavy, but like, I love kind of trying to answer questions of like what you're getting and what you're giving up, you know, mm-hmm. what are your thoughts? Yeah. And I'd throw the, I'd throw the Fritchie Tecton in there yep. too, yep. Uh, in that same category. So from a, if, from a purely downhill standpoint, I think those bindings do feel a little bit better. They do feel a little bit more like an alpine binding. I don't know if it's power transfer from the better contact points of the heel or if it's suspension or if it's both, but I've skied both those bindings quite a bit and they do feel a little bit better in that regard. But they, the, so I think if you're planning on using your, your pin bindings a lot inbounds, which I I personally never do, um, I, th- those are probably a, a better option there, but the trade-off in not just weight, but overall complexity is massive, but especially the weight. And I, I know there's lots of people and they're probably a lot fitter and stronger than I am that are out there just going uphill and downhill all day long on, on touring gear, like, like Kingpins or Tectons or Solomon shifts. Yeah with heavier skis. And that's great. Um, personally, I've, I enjoy my touring days a lot more on lighter gear, which is why I've kind of gravitated just, and this isn't, I'm not saying this is what everybody should do, but for my personal skiing, I've gravitated toward the, toward the lighter gear on the lightest end of the spectrum that I feel like I can still, you know, enjoy skiing. And for me, the, um, the Voyager honestly is on the heavy end of what I would choose for a touring binding. It's, uh, I consider it like a full featured, you know, it's got brakes and it's Mm -hmm. got the elasticity and it's got adjustability. I think it's a, it's a really good sweet spot. I think that it'll work for a lot of people, but you're right. I think those bindings are, they feel more, for lack of a better word, they feel more solid. Those bindings like the Kingpin and the Tecton. Um, one other thing, one other plug I'll just say on the Voyager, which I think is, is really cool that Moment thought about, and I'm, you're seeing this with the DPS iteration of this binding now, is that they they address the ramp angle issue yep. on the on the on that binding, and maybe I'm a little princess in a pea here, um, but I can feel I can tell I can feel it, and I this I'm coming from someone who's been skiing on Dinafits since not that long, but I got my first pair of Dinafits around like probably 2005 or 2006, mm-hmm. and I skied them I started skiing them a lot then the <laughs> that tippy toe feeling that we all just got used to on some of those and not all of them were that bad some of the original ones were had a re- more reasonable ramp angle similar to these um voyagers but a lot of those uh like the radical generation i believe or maybe just before that was like 15 millimeter delta yeah and um 
you know, it's, it's different, especially if you're going, if you're skiing your alpine bindings a lot and then you put them on, it's, it, I don't like that feeling personally. And, uh, and you know, people with a really long boot sole might notice it less and people with a really short boot sole probably notice it a lot more. But, um, I, you know, I love the way the marker alpinist feels with its two millimeter Delta. I think it's sweet. I, I love the way that binding skis and feels, um, but the Voyager's is good enough for me in that regard. Mm-hmm. You got another binding you want to talk about? Yep. Um, kind of all in, also in the spirit of this lighter end of the spectrum is the Dinafit Super Light 150. This is a fairly new binding from Dinafit. It replaced a very popular binding, the Super Light 2.0, which um, I had used also quite a bit, which uh, I think they call it the Super Light 175 now. And so it's a little bit heavier, but the Super Light 150 is a completely new binding, completely new toe piece and new heel piece from the older version of the Dinafit Super Light. The notable things about it are that it has a uh, release value setting of up to 13. Now that's lateral release, that's lateral adjustability only. The, the vertical release is a fixed U-spring like we see in a race style binding, which I'm told is kind of around equivalent to a release value of around 10. But um, the lateral adjusts to 13, which is pretty wild in a binding that weighs 150 grams. Hmm. For the, the other thing you immediately notice when you look at this binding is the there's no adjustability in the heel piece to accommodate for different boot sole lengths. So for people who like to swap between boots, that might be a non-starter. Dinafit does sell adjustment plates, but at that point you're into you have a 200 gram binding with a much higher ramp angle, hmm. and there's in my opinion there's better choices at, at that point. So I feel like the super light is is a is what you get if if you want a a burlier binding than a race binding with a similar weight to a race binding and you're going to use one pair of boots. Yeah. But I've been skiing that binding on the zero G one Oh five, which in my opinion is one of the more kind of robust burly kind of touring skis out yep. there. And I've been skiing them with the, uh, I have them mounted for my zero G pro tours. So, you know, like again, pretty burly boot. So I, I feel like I'm, <laughs> I'm creating a lot of stress on that binding and I'm a, you know, 200 pound guy and I ski fairly fast. Um, and, uh, so far no pre-releases out of them with that 150 gram binding. And I've been, I've skied some last spring. I skied some pretty big runs at pretty high speeds on that setup and definitely questioned that decision a couple of times, <laughs> just looking down on my feet, yeah. but no issues. Um, I definitely would say that toe feels like it has better retention than the old super light 175 toe because I did kick out of that a couple of times and I haven't done that yet. So this always to me raises the question then, I mean, man, we're getting into some <laughs> quite light bindings and you're talking mm -hmm. about, you know, skiing in a Technica zero G tour pro boot, which we all think is an extremely good, quite capable touring boot. You're on a fairly burly ski, the blizzard zero G one Oh five. And you're saying that this binding is working well, but I want to know what kind of conditions have you been skiing in? Right? Cause my whole argument, and it's not unique to me is that with bindings, you're going to get your suspension from one or to, from basically one of two places, either from the binding itself or from the conditions you're skiing on or in, right? So if you said you're skiing hard and fast in pretty good snow or even better, pretty deep 
very forgiving snow, well, now you don't need any suspension coming from the binding. If you're telling me you're skiing this setup on like some nasty, firm, or mixed condition runout stuff, then you've really got my attention. Yeah. So I've been mostly, I've mostly skied that ski in, in good, soft snow conditions. I have definitely encountered my share of. So in turning and pass a lot of the runs, they, you know, you have these giant open alpine bowls and ridge lines. And then uh, just because the alders, the low elevation brush has just gotten so much bigger in the last couple of decades, a lot of times you're still getting funneled back through the brush yeah. through like very well used paths that end up getting all muggled up and um, funky. And so I've, and you know, I like to ski that stuff fast and, and jump around in it. And uh, so I, I've, I've skied some pretty, pretty bad snow on their setup, but I totally agree with you. And I'm not saying, I'm not definitely not advocating uh, that this is like the right way to use that binding or, or it's intended use. I think I bring it up in, in that scenario with those bigger boots and bigger skis more to illustrate the point that it's a, the binding's cap- capable of pretty high level of retention. Yeah. I don't think I've, I don't think I've demonstrated any more than that. Right. I don't think I've, I've demonstrating that it's necessarily it does i mean it, it doesn't have any suspension right the only suspension you get like you said is from the snow your legs and the ski there's there's no suspension built into that binding i mean it, it's it's an out it's a peg of metal screwed <laughs> directly onto the ski with the only spring is the lateral release right yeah. i mean um and so so no i mean there's there's no suspension of the binding at all uh for, for so I think you know the important thing, especially with all this touring gear, as we get these lighter, more specialized products, is to understand the trade-offs and the intention of it. And I, I'm confident that DinaFit does not intend for this binding to be used like that, but it's capable of it. And I think you had a conversation recently with John Weir from Bentgate there in Colorado. Yeah, you guys touched on this a little bit, and. So I, I, I agree with him that people, there are people putting these bindings on fatter skis, even, even like 120 millimeter underfoot skis. And I think his point's good that the snow, like you said, the snow creates a suspension on that kind of setup. So I think that there are these kind of like a little bit out of the box applications for this, for these lighter bindings. I, you know, you're going to hear me talk later about why I think the F1 LT is an awesome all around boot that work that could work for a lot more people than are paying attention to it. I don't think I'm willing to go there for the the late like race type bindings. I think that you really need to know what you're getting there. And, and I haven't even touched on the safety aspect of it. And that is a kind of a black box to me. I don't know if, for example, the super light 150 is, is more likely to cause a knee injury or something than the Voyager or the Alpinist. I, I don't have any, I don't have a good sense of that. I don't, I, I don't, I don't know. Honestly, you know, there's more adjustment in those bindings. You can adjust the upward release. Um, so I think that's another question that is out there. Yep. So again, I don't think that, pe- that, that I'm not saying everybody should go out there and, and ski their 130 flex touring boots and big skis with 150 gram bindings. But I think it's remarkable that, that the binding so far for a, me, a fairly big guy, fairly aggressive skier, uh, have held up pretty well. And honestly, sometimes with review stuff, I like to put stuff kind of on like, yep. the, you know, I like to test thousand gram boots with 120 millimeter ski. Cause it's you, when you get to the edges of those kind of things, you start to see how, how stuff holds up, you know, yeah. I, I feel like, and, uh, and that's part of why I put that, that binding on that ski. And 
so far so good. Yeah. And man, I completely agree. And I just, I, I guess I feel an increasing responsibility that a hundred percent, like when we're trying to test some gear kind of at its limits to figure stuff out, I guess I just rightly or wrongly, I find myself worrying that somebody hears this and is like, oh, sick. I was listening to this Blister Gear 30 podcast. And apparently those guys think a Dinafit Superlight 150 is super good to go on pretty burly setups. And now mm-hmm. I ski that in the resort. And I'm like, okay. Yep. So this is where we yep. need just like reading comprehension and listening comprehension. I threw in the caveat to those <laughs> who are listening too quickly here. Um, and, and again, that I say a lot, like, I don't care what your setup is. I don't care, like, meaning you, dear listener, go ski whatever you want, anywhere you want. That's great. I just feel like it is our job to help people really understand what they're getting and what they're not getting. The compromises they're making by selecting a certain boot or binding or ski. And after that, it's a free country and be smart, you know? Yeah. And I think you know, just to add to that point, uh, the fact that that super light 150 is keeping me in there at 200 pounds going fast on a big ski and big boot that some people might consider that a liability, right? That, that, that binding is not releasing under that kind of pressure and it doesn't have a lot of adjustability. The toe piece has no adjustability and the lateral release has, or the vertical release has no adjustability. So if you want your binding to release at forces less than that exerted by a 200 pound guy with a 20 pound pack going 30 miles per hour. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that may be a liability. There's some adjustment there, but <laughs> yeah. All right. I think we've, we've covered that cool. one and it's cool to hear. I mean, and, and yeah, it is, uh, it's a theme, and I was talking about this with John Weir. I do think that the lighter stuff is getting better, holding up better than ever before. I think that is something like a fact. Mm-hmm. I would agree. Okay. I would agree. Like, there's incremental improvements in design and materials for sure. Let's talk climbing skins for a minute. Okay. So, we've talked about this a lot on paper. We've done some kind of skin roundups. Yeah. And those who've paid attention to that know that I think a lot of us are big fans of Pomoka products these days. The The glue is excellent. They have a pretty nuanced approach to the skin plush, meaning you can go on their website and you can really look at real numbers, at least their Pomoka's numbers, but so far relative to each product that they check out for me, relative to, to each different product, how good the glide is or how good the grip is. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of us are pretty big fans of those pink uh, free 2.0s or, and to a little lesser degree, the race 2.0, which I'm not advocating that as an everyday skin, even though I've said some really good things about it. Um, But those have been really great skins. The other skin that I've been using a lot lately and really, really liking is the new G3 Minimus series. Hmm. And for those who've been ski touring or split boarding for a long time, they're probably probably have had personal experience themselves or had a friend with G3 skins that had some issue. I feel like every time I tell friends ask me about skins, I say, Oh, I really like the G3s. They'll say, Oh, I'll never get G3s. The glue's terrible. And I think to be fair to G3, in my experience, every company has had glue issues at one point or another. I've not, I haven't been using Pomoka stuff long enough to, to have had that experience there. Maybe they never have, but I've certainly seen it with a lot of others, pretty much every other skin brand I've used, and I've used most of them out there. 
my experience with the G3 Minimist products is that they the glue is great. It's pretty sticky at first, but they quickly wear into the kind of the sweet spot for me, which is they stay on even when it's really cold. Um, but they, I can rip them pretty easily without taking my skis off, which is a major pet peeve of mine. If I have to take my skis off to rip my skins hmm. and without feeling like I'm dislocating my shoulder. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, so hmm. I think the, the glue is good. The plush is great. They have real good glide, good grip. I've been using the, um, both the hundred percent mohair version and the 70, 30 version. And, uh, I, this time of year, especially when it's really dry and cold, the hundred percent mohair, I'm, I'm hundred percent in on that. Hmm. But the, the nylon, it, I mean, in my experience, those nylon skins with a little bit of nylon do hold up a little better, um, throughout the year. You're talking but, uh, just durability is better. You're yeah, not talking yeah. about say like traction. No, I mean, I think the traction, I mean, they say the traction is a little better. I might buy it. Um, huh. I'm mostly on, you know, pretty fat skis. Yeah. So I think it, it probably isn't as obvious when you're always on like hundred underfoot plus skis yeah. with the traction component. But, um, but the minimist, uh, glide, which is the 70, 30 is awesome. They're great skins. They're, uh, I have they're plenty of glide. The grip's good. I, I just think that the, maybe it's just psychological, but the hundred percent mohair ones, um, especially with the fat skis, I think have a little bit of an edge for me mm-hmm. personally. Um, but the other really cool thing about the G3s, uh, they've addressed an issue that I think probably most of us have had with our skins at one point or another is the the ability for snow to creep in under the tip. Yep. And uh, I mean, I, I don't know what it's like elsewhere necessarily, but up here, you know, we do skin sometimes in some wetter, heavier snow and or even on some really cold days when the glue's not working as well. And I've definitely had that with my Pomoka skins and I've, I've had it really bad with, I, I used to just be all about that black diamond ultralight um, glide light skin, the, the lightest version of it. And those are the worst offenders of this in my mind, even with all kinds of creative cutting solutions to try to minimize it. Uh, those, those skins really get a lot of snow under the tips. And uh, those G3s, that, that thin, they, they say it's a carbon piece of material that reinforces that. I think it really works. It, it, it doesn't limit your ability to roll them up and shove them in your pocket, which is another must for me. I want them compact because I always have my skins in my pocket. But uh, man, it works. It's a pretty cool, pretty cool engineering feat in my mind. Um, so I think I think that G three Minimus skin. I think especially those who've who've uh, not who've had a bad opinion of G three in the past because of some glue issues or some other whatever other problems. Take a look at the Minimus. They're cool skins. Um, the only thing I don't like about them is I find their tail system is. Uh, not easy to use. Once you get it adjusted for a pair of skis, it's fine, but it's pretty hard to adjust. And I, you know, because I'm doing blister stuff, yeah. I'm rot- rotating through multiple skis and it's a real, in my mind, it's a real pain in the butt to adjust the length. <laughs> Once mm-hmm. you get it right, it generally maintains its position fairly well, but there's a lot of simple, elegant solutions to tail systems. And I think the G3 one is is overly complicated in my opinion. And I've actually had one fail G3. I think they've updated the, the piece a little bit for this year's model. The new ones that I have don't seem like they've had this issue, but it's pretty complicated, <laughs> but great skins. Definitely check out the G3 minimist. Uh, I think they're, I think a lot of people will be pretty happy with those skins. All right. Probably time for the most important topic <laughs> in this conversation. <laughs> um, <clears throat> we're going to talk about, uh, Ski poles, and more specifically, you have some thoughts on touring poles. 
Um, you got as fired up about this <laughs> uh, before we started recording. Um, and uh, what would you like to talk about here? Well, I, to be fair, when we started this conversation before the podcast, I said, what are your thoughts about long grip polls, Jonathan? Yeah. And by long grip polls, let's clarify. Yep. We're talking about the polls that have, you know, two thirds of the length of the pole shaft covered in some type of like grippy soft foam. There's a couple brands out there. Um, I've only tried one of them. But uh, yeah, so what? what are, first of all, are you guys seeing them in Colorado? Like we're seeing them kind of popping up around here. Is, is this like a, a worldwide trend? Oh, yeah. This I think this is kind of similar to the Omicron variant. It's like everywhere and spreading quickly. Um, that was a COVID joke <laughs> for people who, is it too soon? COVID humor? No, I don't know. no, it's fine. Um, it's, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, they're everywhere. Um, I think Luke Kappa has already, you know, been struck by the long grip uh, fad, to use your term. When you, <laughs> when you wrote me and you said, when are we going to talk about the long grip pole fad? Uh, and, you, and you were like, maybe not today, question mark. And I was like, oh, yeah, no, we're going to now definitely talk about it today. Um, yeah, Luke, Luke is in on it. I have not gone that route yet. I have still had such allegiance to my Scott Team Issue poles that I ski in bounds with and have mostly just been touring with those. And I will say the only thing about the Scott Team Issue pole, which is I still think arguably the greatest product in the history of skiing i have very small baskets on them so it definitely kind of sucks for most days touring when i'm just like <laughs> they're just like darting through the snow and so yeah uh well we actually just talked about it uh mountain flow is introducing a new recyclable kind of infinitely recyclable ski pole and that was my first question to them. I was like, how is this going to hold up compared to my beloved Scott team issue poll? <laughs> and they think quite well, I will be using those polls soon. And the one thing is they do have a, they come stock with a bigger basket than my Scott team issues. So I have so far been sitting out the long grip pole fad. Luke is, <laughs> I think, a believer. What are your thoughts, Paul Forward? So... First of all, to preface, people should use whatever polls they like and nobody <laughs> should care what I think about ski poles. Poles are an important part of skiing, but the type of pole you have is not important, in my opinion. That said, I've tried them. I've tried, actually, I've tried two different kinds. I've tried the, um, the French ones and I've tried the Black Crows version. And I, the way I understand it is that a lot of people are choosing to buy them on the long side with the idea that they have a longer pole for, I, I, I use longer poles mostly just when I'm like trying to pull across the flats. I usually shorten my poles up a little bit for the uphill uh, or leave them the same length I use for the, for the descent. But, uh, and then they choke up on them and they have like, you know, several inches of pole above their hand for the descent. And I think it's fine. I really don't understand why it's popular. I've tried it. It, it feels fine. You have this, thing flopping around that you feel like you're going to smash yourself in the face with. Maybe that's just my bad skiing style. And I, I tend to have a pretty wide, you know, hands out to the sides. Yeah, you out do. Front, so. <laughs> that's <laughs> my favorite thing about your skiing style. 
<laughs> but so maybe it wouldn't affect me that much and I haven't smashed myself in the goggles yet with <laughs> but I I I don't I don't get I mean I understand on the uphill it's nice to be able to adjust your hands and move your hands around but we've been able to do that with ski poles forever and even black diamonds had those nice little rings or even those kind of nice slightly longer foam handles um this is not a hill i want to die on when it comes to ski gear but i just think people should consider whether it really is that much of a benefit and for the i i I typically tour on just a fixed length you know 125 centimeter pole kind of like you're talking about no 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 pole straps um i do keep a pair of poles in my car that are adjustable that I keep the pole straps on and I use those anytime I'm going to go someplace with a long flat approach because I love to go yeah. full length yeah. and I I don't I don't use straps at all when I'm skiing or touring or when I'm guiding but when I'm like skating out or or double pulling I love having the straps and so I have like a <laughs> I have my poles that I and I, there's a fair number of places around here that I ski that are like that and I'll use those poles and it's awesome. And so I'm not sure, I don't want way heavier poles. I don't want poles that have all this extra length I don't need when I'm skiing down. And I want to have, if I do want long poles, I usually want pole straps. And so I just wonder if this is like, maybe I could save somebody a hundred dollars. Just <laughs> use your good, your nice adjustable poles. Those long grip poles, they, they look, I guess, cool. But they, uh, I don't find them as practical as they're as they're made out to be, and I'm sure we're probably going to get some some passionate oh, yeah. responses to this. But um, and I, you know, other points I would say that are good about them, they are. I do like. I'm a big fan of flipping my poles upside down and jamming them in the snow for the for the ascent. I've been doing that for a long time. Turns out you can do that with regular ski poles too. Not quite as effectively. I would all give you. And, and the, particularly the Black Crows ones are pretty good for that. They have like a pretty narrow profile yep. with a metal cap on top. And actually, I think they're really good. I think those those French ones with the big grips um, or those fulcrum ones, I, I don't think they're any better for that than any old any other pole, personally. They have you know, that's a, quite a big piece of profile there. Um, what I wish there was was a pole with an easily removable basket for stabbing in the snow and doing quick probing of snowpack, but that doesn't exist. Hey, should we maybe circle back for just a second? And when you were saying, if somebody's wondering, you said when people are stabbing poles into the ground, for what purposes? Mm. Mm-hmm. So um, sometimes when you're boot packing, like a steeper section, of like a, especially up like a couloir or something, uh, you want you don't have an ice axe or something in your yeah. hands and you want something that if it's, a, if it's firm snow, but it's too solid to... F- or, but but not so firm that you can't penetrate it with your pole grip, for example. The, the basket side of the pole isn't going to give you a lot of security there. But if you flip your pole upside down and jam the handle side in, yeah. there's certain types of snow conditions where that at least mentally gives you some security. Um, I, don't, I don't think you're going to self-arrest that way, but it might give you a little security mentally and a little ability to, you know, pull yourself over the, over the you know, the top of the cornice or something. Yeah. So, I think this might need to be a new test you perform for Blister and for consumers all around the world. <laughs> We're going to just have you try to self-arrest like 10 times in a row uh, just using your uh, long grip poles and see if you can, <laughs> can pull that off. I mean, here's the deal. I, I use this. I stab my grips in the pole, my grips in the snow constantly when I'm guiding because I'm always on a sketchy ridge someplace or I'm always on a ridge with like firm snow 
And I always want my poles to stay put while I'm doing something with my hands, whether that's like I'm dropping down to dig a pit or I'm helping somebody with their stuff or I'm whatever. And I always, you know, if, if the snow will take it, I'm always jamming the poles in grip first. And I have my regular old, you know, leaky or black diamond poles and they jab in just fine like that. And honestly, those, those, um, but baton d'Alon, the French ones, they, I, to me, they're harder to do that with. They're, like they have a pretty bulbous end on them. And so enough said about that. We can talk about it more. I, we should get Luke on here too and talk to and have like a, Get a, get a pro long grip pole person's perspective. Oh, we might. Hey, before we leave the ski pole topic though, where are you? I mean, you've already, I guess, explained that you do use adjustable poles because, right, As if we're thinking about ski pole fads and trends, you know, for a while there, we kind of went from everyone was in the backcountry with fixed length poles then it kind of mm-hmm. seemed like you could only go into the backcountry with adjustable poles. Then it yep. seems like fixed length <laughs> are, you know, started making a comeback. Where do you care, Dr. Forward, to tell yep. us where the, the fad and trends lie with, with adjustable? Oh, I don't want to talk about fads and trends. I'm a bad person for that. But I will tell you my thoughts on adjustable okay. versus fixed length poles. Uh, so I've, I have I do own and I've, I've used a lot of different versions of uh, – I have an embarrassing number of ski poles laying around here. And uh, so here's my thoughts. Adjustable poles, I've mentioned before, they're good for pulling out the flats. I do think that there is a safety benefit especially – and this is this – is, kind of like weird Alaska stuff maybe, but there's a lot of times when I'm sitting at the bottom of a big run and I think I'm out of the way, I'm down at the bottom as far away from the run as I can be. And because I'm guiding a lot, I'm waiting for other people to ski, but same with ski touring. I think being able to quickly adjust your poles to, to a longer length, either to skate up to rescue somebody or to pull yourself out of the way, I think is actually a decent safety feature and one that I've thought about before. And I've talked to other guides about um, whether I'd have time to do that. If there was an avalanche imminently coming down, I don't think I would be doing that first. I'd be skating and pulling, but I do think that there's a safety benefit to being able to adjust your poles to length. Um, I also think that uh, there is something to adjusting your poles relative to the steepness of the terrain. And I know that's a thing that the long grip at pole advocates say you yeah. can quickly adjust your pole length in steeper terrain, you can have a shorter pole on one side or the other. Um, you know, I've been doing that for years with regular ski poles and it seems to work just fine, but adjustable poles, um, it seems like if, you know, if, if there's certain circumstances where you know, you're going to want a shorter pole, it's kind of cool. Um, the downside to them of course, is that there's one more thing to fail. It can come apart. I've, I've broken more two piece poles than I have one piece poles for whatever reason. Um, but, uh, and also sometimes like I'll, I'll, a lot of times I'll hand people my pole grip to pull them up if they've, you know, lost their balance or fallen down and two piece poles can come apart sometimes when you do that. <laughs> um, but, uh, so, you know, I th- and then there's like the people, there's people who are pretty sensitive to swing weight in their poles. I like a light pole, but it doesn't bother me that much to have a little heavier one. And by the time you put that giant powder basket on there, you kind of lost most of the swing weight benefit anyway. But, um, so I think that, there's still a good point, a good reason to have adjustable poles. I think the best reason is if you're in places where you like to skate at, skate in and out or double pole in and out, have, being able to go to the longest length is great. Um, but uh, 
so I, yeah, I don't know. It, it, and I mean, it's probably there's an aesthetic part of it too, which I, I don't care about as much, obviously. But the other, um, you know, this is kind of a segue into something else we were going to touch on briefly. Uh, I have some snow saw passion. You do. And, uh, <laughs> okay. And there are, one of the reasons why I've started using adjustable poles guiding again is because I live in a place where we get lots of icy crusts in our snowpack. And I'm, I'm a person who on a very regular basis is doing, um, uh, PSTs and, uh, and extended column tests, um, to evaluate the snowpack. I mean, this is something I'm doing sometimes multiple times a day. And just like everybody else, I've always carried cords for that. Sometimes I carry two probes which to, to make it easier to do that. But honestly, like the best Roosh block cord, or the best cord ever is going to struggle to get through um, rain crusts and melt freeze crusts. And uh, having a snow saw on an extension is a really quick, like slick way to isolate a column and know you're getting through the crust. And um, there's a black diamond saw that, that attaches to a pole. There's a BCA saw that attaches to a pole and they attach to a two piece pole by, by the, there's basically a male end of the saw that attaches to the upper part, female part of the pole. And you get a a nice long snow saw extension that you can use to isolate, you know, a meter plus deep column pretty quickly. And so um, I think that's, that's one reason why I've been using them more when I'm in my guiding work, because I like being able to truly know that I've isolated the column versus hoping my cord got through the ice. Um, so if I know I'm going to be doing a lot of that kind of stuff, or I know that layers out there, I'll grab my adjustable poles and, and, a, and a saw that I can attach to it. While I'm on that topic, the reason that I don't usually bring those saws with me is that for some reason, maybe it's a unique thing to my world. But the other thing I use my saw for a lot is, uh, is cutting, cutting wood. Uh, some, sometimes quickly and efficiently, it's a rescue thing. You know, you can make a, a landing for a helicopter with it. You can, um, you can use it, you know, for all kinds of being able to cut wood is, is pretty helpful out there, whether you're snow machining or whether you're, you know, making a, a splint for somebody. I think it's a pretty good thing to be able to do quickly and efficiently. And most snow saws are terrible at cutting wood. And, uh, you know, blisters reviewed silky saws before they're amazing how efficient they are. So I've been carrying a, a, a saw blade from a one piece silky saw for years with a custom made scabbard because I can clear a lot of, a lot of brush in a hurry with that if I need to, but it doesn't have the ski pole extension on it and it doesn't have the, the nice centimeter marks and things like that on it for, for, you know, measuring my, my uh, columns. So if there's a snow saw maker out there listening, please make, a very sharp, high-performance, silky-style blade on an extendable, pole-attachable. Pole <laughs> I, think, I think people would buy it. <laughs> <laughs> we know one person who would. I, I mean, it's cool to be able to do that. I mean, you're making fires when you're out camping. Like it's, it's cool to have, a, have a, good, a good, effective saw, personally. I like so, it. Good anyway. thoughts. Good thoughts on yeah. ski poles and snow saws. Hey, we are quickly approaching the end of our time. Um, oh, no. I guess we need to give you a few minutes, and we can circle back on this topic. As we were putting some notes together for this conversation, you just had written, uh, Boots, Scarpa F1LT is all you need 
uh, <laughs> smiley-ish face winky emoji kind of a thing. So um, I feel like we need to give you at least a few minutes to talk about the Scarpa F1 LT. So the Scarpa F1 LT is a boot that came out last year from Scarpa and essentially replaced the Alien RS in their line, which um, we have a review up on Blister and um, we'll shortly have a review up on the F1 LT. Uh, in a nutshell, it's a both boots are around a thousand grams. The um, the F1 LT is actually about a hundred grams heavier uh, in in my size, which is a ten percent increase because <laughs> we're talking about a thousand gram boots here. But uh, for those who read my Alien RS review, you know that I think it's a really impressive boot for its weight. Skis remarkably well. It's incredibly comfortable for touring. As always, provided it's it fits you well. And um, I've skied pretty much every touring ski I own with it in all kinds of like fairly big terrain. And uh, you know, we can we, we should talk about this in the future, um, especially after you get a chance to try a pair. Yeah. I'm really curious your perspective. But um, I go back to back all the time, alternating days between my Technica Zero G Pro Tours and my F1 LTs. And they're definitely not the same, and they're not even in the same category, and they're not even intended for the same person. But it's very rare that I go skiing in the F1 LTs or the Alien RSs, and I say, oh, wish I'd had my heavier boots today. It's much more common that I take the other boots, and I'm fiddling around with four buckles and at every transition and, and, and have a, you know, I get down and I'm like, man, I could have just easily skied my, my light boots all day today. There's definitely runs and places, um, especially up here in Alaska, where I'd, I'd, I'd rather have the, the bigger boot to be able to go fast and more complicated terrain and have the confidence in the runouts. But, you know, Scarpa, I think, rates them at 100 flex. And we've talked about endlessly how those numbers don't really mean anything. But I'm, as I've said earlier, uh, I'm a, not a small guy. I'm a 200-pound guy, and I've been skiing 120-millimeter underfoot skis fairly, fairly stiff, long ones at that. And I've been having a blast in those boots, uh, almost everything I do. And I think that, and that's for me personally, and I know there's a lot of things that go into boot choices, but I think that if more people tried these lighter weight, kind of two buckle thousand ish gram boots, I think it's, I think a lot of people will be very pleasantly surprised how much that there's a significant enjoyment increase in their overall ski touring experience in these light boots. Like you spend most of your day going up and if you haven't tried lightening up your ski touring setup by, you know, 500 grams or, or a thousand grams, pretty easy to shed now compared to setups that were out there before. It's, I've seen the looks on people's faces when they get the lighter stuff on their feet and they're like, they're like, wow, <laughs> that's awesome. And it's, it's more fun. You, you get more runs in, you want to stay out longer and you know, yeah, 200 grams here on a pair of boots isn't, it doesn't seem like a lot, especially when you probably have that much snow stuck to your top sheets, but you're going to have that much snow tucked to your stuff to your top sheets, whether you have a 1400 gram boot or a thousand gram boot. <laughs> and so I, I just think that those boots, yeah, it's not a, it's not a smooth progressive flex. There's not great suspension. You're not going to uh, enjoy smashing around the crud at the ski hill on them. But for corn skiing and powder skiing and whatever you have to deal with in between. I think that I really think that a lot of people would be impressed how well those boots do. And, um, I think that the F1 LT and the alien RS are, are in my experience, not having been on all the 
the current model kind of competitors in that class. I, I just think those boots are really remarkable for what they are. And, um, and I will say this is a little bit of a spoiler for the upcoming review. Um, I honestly don't see a lot of advantage of the heavier, uh, more slightly more complex F1 LT over the discontinued alien RS. Um, so if anyone's listening and wondering if they should retire their alien RS to get some F1 LTs, my advice would be if you like your alien RSs, ski them, just keep skiing them and try to find a, another pair because I, I think there's not that much advantage to the F1 LT over the alien RS. Um, and the disadvantage is it's a little heavier. And if you've gotten used to the one motion walk mode, ski mode switch versus two Velcro straps that, uh, one of which at least you kind of need to take your gloves off to adjust each time. Um, you know, I'm not doing rando races, but I like a quick, smooth transition. And once you get used to being able to just flip one lever <laughs> and go uphill again or go downhill again, uh, it, you're like, man, I got to bend over and pull my pants up and do a Velcro strap to go downhill now. <laughs> <laughs> and that, my friends, is what we call a first world problem. <laughs> agreed but there but anyway take a look at those boots and we'll have a full review up soon i'm really excited for you to try them jonathan and see what you think but um i think it's a remarkable piece of ski gear and i think that i think that people should give them a try if they have the opportunity excellent man hey um it is always fun to catch up with you on this sort of thing and um and, you know, make it public instead of just the very long back and forth text exchanges. Uh, so, um, <laughs> yeah, it's always good to get your take on this stuff. And, uh, yeah, on that note, I got to go, man. Um, and I know you got some things to do, Me too. too. So, gotta um, take my kids skiing. <laughs> got to take your kids skiing. Awesome. Um, well, hey, um, well, I'm going to talk to you again before the end of this year, so I'm not going to wish you a new year or anything like that. That'll that'll that's still to come. But uh, I'm glad we got to 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 do this and get this episode under our belts. And I know. Well, let's go ahead and give the uh, the spoiler. We are going to come back and do a Gear Thirty episode on winter camping, and just mm-hmm. get some of your thoughts where especially kind of in the wheelhouse of like, if you're just talking about like a one night trip or maybe a one to two night, you know, trip out in the back country and, and get some of your thoughts and tips and tricks and talk a bit more about um, perhaps some gear things too. So that is uh we got to make that happen coming up sometime here, hopefully in January. And um, yeah, we'll get your thoughts on that. That sounds awesome. Looking forward to it. Awesome, man. Hey, thank you. Have fun out there with Ren and uh, we'll talk to you real soon. Thanks, Jonathan. You have have a great night and happy solstice to you. Ah, to you too. All right, man. Take care. All right. It is time now for our weekly What We're Celebrating segment. It is currently Thursday, December 23rd at 1034 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. And tonight, I have in my hand, once again, a glass of Whistlepig 15-year-old rye whiskey because we have a lot to celebrate tonight. And I think the first thing, if you listen to last week's episode, well, you know that last Friday, we had to go out and telemark ski for the first time ever. 
I was kind of nervous. I was raising a glass of Whistlepig 15-year-old rye last week because I was slightly worried that might be like the last whiskey I ever had in my life. Turns out we're still here. And so I do not want to spoil the video that we shot last week. I think some of you at least are going to enjoy it. But um, the one spoiler alert I'm going to tell you is that we all survived. Everybody survived. I don't want to take that for granted. And so, yeah, I raised my glass to more days on this lovely planet. Speaking of this lovely planet, the other thing that I want to raise a glass to is the fact that obviously a number of places across the, especially, I guess, Western United States currently are just seeing a ton of snow. And so I think this is good for all kinds of reasons, from mental health reasons to just getting more precipitation to a lot of areas that could use it. Uh, And there's going to be a lot of ski areas that are setting up quite nicely right now. Um, So let's all be grateful for that. And finally, let's all be real smart. And if we are traveling into the backcountry, exercise some patience and wisdom, be smart out there, be safe out there. We don't want to lose any of you, you know? And so I'll also raise my glass to being smart and making good decisions in the backcountry in the midst of big old storm cycles. And that then brings us to the end of this edition of Gear 30. I want to say thanks, as always, to Paul Forward for the great conversation. Thanks to the strikingly handsome Justin Bob for producing this episode. And from all of us here in Gunnison and Crested Butte, please take good care of yourself and everybody else. And we will talk to you again on Monday over on our Blister podcast, where Zach Guy the lead forecaster of the Crested Butte Avalanche Center is back on the podcast to talk about the massive storms that are now hammering the Western United States and some of the things that you need to know and do to stay safe out there. I can tell you, we had Zach on about a year ago on our Blister podcast, and it is one of our most listened to episodes ever. And I'm really proud of that because Zach is a sharp guy who is in the mountains all the time. So he is a very good person for you to pay attention to. He's also a really cool guy. So anyway, that's Monday. We'll catch you over there. I hope you all have a wonderful holidays and we will talk to you real soon.